Since November 28, 1987, Kevin Williams has had a very heavy interest in radio. Now he's living his dream by doing a podcast. Welcome to the LDS Life Podcast. It is Saturday, February 20th, 2021. I am Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. This is the LDS Life Podcast. I would like to thank Relay, who is now doing the voiceovers for the LDS Life Podcast. She does a great job. I heard her do the voiceovers, and she did a great job, so I figured we would keep Relay on to do our voiceovers. Great job, Relay. Thanks very much. Today is going to be a different podcast than usual. Yes, I'm going to talk about something in the LDS community. But one of the reasons I did not do a podcast earlier this week is I was debating on rather I should even do a podcast this week because of some things that have happened that I'll get to here in a few minutes. But because of what's happened and because he was part of my life for so long and there were times where I loved him, there were times I hated him. And so I figured to pay him a tribute, I would do a show about Rush Limbaugh. And yes, I'll do other topics. But as a podcaster and as someone who has been in radio, I cannot miss this opportunity to talk about the beloved Rush Limbaugh. So, I would say half of this podcast is going to be about Rush Limbaugh. If you don't like it, well, fast forward it for a while. And I'll, I will have moved on to another topic. Otherwise, keep listening. This is not going to be a typical show about Rush Limbaugh either. You know, people talk about how Rush Limbaugh's influenced them. Yeah, I'll get into that. But I don't think very many people have talked much about Rush Limbaugh's history. Glenn Beck has, but Glenn Beck was not entirely accurate about Rush Limbaugh's history either. So let me be Glenn Beck's fact checker. But before I get into that, let me just explain to you how I found out about Rush Limbaugh. I was nine years old back in 1989. My dad was driving from Salt Lake City, Utah to Ontario, Oregon, because that's where we lived back in 1989. And we were in a car called the Fuego. The Fuego is no longer made anymore. I just did some research on it. It was made in France. It was a sports car. That was made, I think, in the early to mid-80s. They actually quit making it in 1986. My dad bought it in 1988. And this car was interesting. It actually had two speakers in the back. They weren't that good of speakers either. They were two speakers, and then there was a front speaker. But you could not open the door the traditional way. Most cars have a door handle. And you lift the door up, or you lift the handle up, or you push the handle towards you. Or, if they're a German-made car, you push the button. 
and the door opens. Of course, you have to push it open. Well, this Fuego, this car, you had to actually reach in the door panel and lift up a latch to open it up. It's a very interesting car. Anyway, my dad and I and my mom and sister and one of my cousins were driving from Salt Lake City, Utah, where my extended family lived at the time, still does, to Ontario, Oregon. And I believe that we were in between Boise and Ontario. And my dad turned on the radio, and my dad was a talk radio fan before talk radio was cool. And my dad turned on the radio to radio station KIDO. AM 63 is what it was called back then. It was on AM 630. AM 63 KIDO is what they went by. And I heard this really distinctive voice. Never heard it before. At the time, I did not like the voice. It sounded very abrupt and really distinctive. I did not like it, nor did I like his attitude. He was yelling at something to do with animal rights activists. And it was just his attitude that I didn't like. Never heard anything like that. It kind of reminded me of watching a bad TV show where people are yelling at each other like a soap opera. Obviously, Rush Limbaugh's show was not that. But it reminded me of something to that effect. And I could not figure out why my dad would listen to such a thing. The only reason I knew it was Rush is because a caller called in and said, Hi, Rush. And I thought that was an odd name for a person to be going by. And I really thought, did somebody's parents actually name him that? Yes, I found out. Yes. Well, as I've gotten older and mature, I realized that what Rush Limbaugh was doing back when I heard him that very hot day in July, I don't remember exactly when in July, but I remember it was in the middle of July, was just for entertainment purposes, and that was just the show, and Rush had to get people riled up so that people would listen to him. And I didn't hear anything about Rush Limbaugh until December of 1989. The reason for that was because my parents' best friends came from Pocatello, Idaho to Ontario, Oregon for a visit. Now, mind you, my parents' best friends moved, um, I believe, about a month and a half before that, maybe a month before. So I asked my dad's friend what radio stations are in eastern Idaho, and he immediately popped up and said, well, I can't listen to Paul J. Schneider on the air and uh, Pocatello, and I haven't found a station that carries Rush Limbaugh yet. I'd completely forgotten all about Rush Limbaugh until my dad's friend mentioned it. Then I remembered, oh, yeah, I heard Rush Limbaugh back in July. And my dad and his friend were talking about what a character he was with his animal rights, act uh, with his animal rights updates. I didn't say anything. I didn't like Rush. I wanted. I didn't want to ever hear him again. But I didn't say that. 
because with my parents, you just that we were raised where uh, when we were growing up, you just didn't argue with your parents. That was the rule. You had to know the culture that I was in back then. You just didn't do that. So I just was quiet. I did give Rush one more chance in 1990, but it wasn't long enough. I come home from summer school and heard him once because my dad was talking about him again, and I didn't hear him enough, and I just thought I'd have nothing to do with him. Well, let's fast forward to 1992. I had... Well, I'll skip that part. In 1992, in the summer of 1992, my parents really, I thought, idolized Rush Limbaugh. They would talk about him, especially when their best friends from Pocatello would come for a visit. They would talk about Rush Limbaugh. Sometimes they would talk about Rush as though he was the only thing that was significant in their lives. I know that wasn't true, but the way that they would talk about Rush sometimes, they would talk about Rush for hours and hours and hours like he was the only thing that was on their mind. And I knew that Rush was conservative because I'd heard him enough just driving around in people's cars, you know, people give me a ride with Rush Limbaugh on, and I knew Rush was a conservative. I, I'd actually listened to Rush just a little bit that summer because my parents talked about him so much, and at that time I started, my gut feeling was telling me you know, Rush was right. I didn't understand it all, but I, he just kind of made sense. Well, I was really curious to find out what Rush Limbaugh had to say after Bill Clinton won the election in 1992. I was doing science homework at the time. I believe it was science. It was either science or social studies. I believe it was science. And my mom came home from a class. My mom... My brother were talking. My brother told me Bill, oh, Bill Clinton won the election. My mom was not happy. I wasn't happy either because it just made sense at that time that President Bush should have won the election as far as from an ideology standpoint. And I remember that summer asking my mom what it was like when Jimmy Carter was president. She told me, oh, we had to turn down our heaters. We had to, you know, people didn't put as many Christmas lights on the house as usual. In fact, a lot of people didn't put Christmas lights up when he was president because we had an energy crisis and he was all about saving energy. And logic just told me, well, if Jimmy Carter, if things were that way with Jimmy Carter and he was a Democrat, then we're going to have the same thing happen with Bill Clinton. It didn't happen. And I remember asking my mom the day after the election, are we going to have an energy crisis? Are we going to have this? Are we going to have that? My mom said, I think Bill Clinton is going to be very careful about what he does because he wants to look good. Well, she was right. But I remember specifically... The day after election, I wanted to skip school because I wanted to hear what Rush Limbaugh had to say. I thought for sure he was going to be awfully depressed. 
I thought for sure that his career would be over. I really thought that we wouldn't hear much from Rush Limbaugh after the election. And I still had it in my head that things were going to be as bad as Jimmy Carter's presidency. Because I was just using logic. Well, Jimmy Carter was a Democrat, and this happened. Bill Clinton was a Democrat. This all happened. And I remember the debates in 1992. Bill Clinton promised that he would raise taxes on the wealthy, cut taxes on the middle class. I remember those debates. I remember that campaign promise. I remember when Bill Clinton broke that campaign promise in February of 93. I remember all that. Much to my surprise, Rush Limbaugh did not go away. In fact, the Saturday, the Saturday after the election, I got my wish. Uh, KIDO, who was still carrying Rush at the time, was airing the best of Rush Limbaugh. And that was run on Saturdays from 3 to 6 in the afternoon. Well, it just happened that Saturday. They aired his show from the day after the election. I was very surprised about what I had heard. I was shocked. I thought for sure Rush would have a meltdown. No, he did not. In fact, he was very enthusiastic about the future of this country. I was just as shocked as probably a lot of people. Those who were and were not fans of Rush. Rush said that he was not that he was not depressed and that conservatism won. And he gave some examples. And he made it very clear that the reason President Clinton won was because of Ross Perot and the media. I would say that's partfully true, but there were other reasons. I won't go into that. Not right now. But I would say that he's partly right. And he said that most of the country is pretty conservative. Most people want family values and just kept rattling on and on and on and on and on. Then he got into this tangent that I'm right most of the time and I'm right and everyone else is wrong and he kept saying and then Rush eventually said I'm not going to I'm not going to start saying I'm not going to say I'm right anymore I sound like a broken record then somebody I'm, I'm sure that this was all pre-planned somebody played it I'm right I'm right and you could hear the record it sounded like a broken record it was you could actually hear the record scratch you know sometimes we're a broken record you know, you hear a broken record and you hear where the scratch is and you hear the where it repeats. It sounded exactly like that. It was pretty funny. So, uh, because of Rush, I was optimistic. I figured if Rush was optimistic, I should be. After all, my parents were big fans of Rush and so were their best friends. So I began listening to Rush religiously from November of 1992, when I was 12 years old, probably till the time I was 14. And then I started getting into other talk shows, and I started liking other people better than Rush, because I thought they were a lot more informative and went into the issues deeper than Rush ever did. And I actually made a prediction. I told my dad. And... 
My mom's best friend, who were with me at the time, we were in the car going from Pocatello to Boise. And I told my dad, my mom, and her best friend, I don't think Rush Limbaugh is going to be at the top anymore, if things keep going the way they are. I actually was kind of right. Rush stayed at the top, but he stayed at the top because of corporate media. He stayed at the top because of the Communications Act of 1996 gobbling up a bunch of radio stations. But you have to understand, back in 1994, 93 and 94, more so in 94, there was a major grassroots movement happening in talk radio. It was no longer just Rush Limbaugh. It was G. Gordon Liddy, Ken Hamblin, Michael Reagan, Chuck Harder, um, Gene Burns, whole a whole bunch of people. Most of talk radio was pretty conservative. Very few liberal talk show hosts were around. You had Alan Combs, and you probably had a few others that were syndicated. You may have had a few local liberals out there. But by and large, talk radio was pretty conservative. And I, you also had Michael Reagan. All these talk shows came on that I had never heard of before. And they sounded, to, to me, better than Rush. They sounded like they were a lot more informative. They were really not afraid to go deeper into the issues, deeper into Bill Clinton's scandals, deeper into what exactly the government was up to. Rush Limbaugh was great, but Rush Limbaugh just touched the surface. He didn't go deep into the issues at all. These other folks that I've mentioned went pretty deep into the issues, especially Chuck Harder, especially Chuck Harder. Probably even more so than G. Gordon Liddy, although G. Gordon Liddy went deeper into the issues too than Rush did. And I think a lot of that was because of G. Gordon Liddy's background. He worked in the Nixon administration. He was in prison for a while, and he did a lot of acting in Hollywood. So he had some insight that I don't think Rush had. But my point is, I think I was partially right. That if things kept going the way they were, Rush wouldn't be at the top anymore. And I think that probably still would have been true, but you have to remember the Communications Act of 1996 passed and allowed corporations to gobble up radio stations like there was no tomorrow, and they did, and Rush Limbaugh was smart from a business standpoint and went with Clear Channel, so they became his distributor. Clear Channel is the company that owns the premier radio network. And that's who Rush went with for the distributor. And a lot of these other talk shows just faded away, not overnight, but over time. And it's because the Communications Act of 96 were the picker, you know, picked and choose who they wanted. Couldn't take Rush Limbaugh out. Now, Rush Limbaugh, by the way, had a lot of things going against him. And this is where I'm going to be Glenn Beck's fact checker. Because Glenn Beck, I heard him do a tribute to Rush Limbaugh. And Glenn Beck wasn't exactly right. Glenn Beck said some things that I need to correct. Glenn Beck said that 
Rush Limbaugh, the only reason Rush Limbaugh, well, he didn't say this directly, but he pretty much said the reason Rush Limbaugh succeeded is because Ed McLaughlin had a bunch of satellite time and called up Rush Limbaugh and put him on. No, 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 no. That's not exactly what happened, Glenn, and you know that. You know that. So why did you say differently on your show, huh? No, let me tell you what happened. I've researched Rush very thoroughly because of my interest in talk radio and Rush Limbaugh. I've researched him thoroughly. I did a speech on Rush Limbaugh in college. Here's what happened. Rush was doing a show on KFBK radio from 1985 to 1988. And his contract, his contract was up in, on March 1st of 1988. Before that, in January, I believe it was January, it might have even been February, it was one of those months, somebody called him from a, that was starting up a syndicated network, and they were representing a prominent family in the Sacramento area, and they wanted Rush Limbaugh to work for him, or for them. Rush Limbaugh had a consultant that was in his corner, Bruce Marr. This is all public information. It's all in his book. I'm not giving out any secrets here. It's all in his book, The Way Things Ought to Be. Go look it up. It's probably on the Internet. In fact, I know it is. Rush had a consultant, Bruce Marr, that was in his corner. In fact, uh, Bruce Marr was able to get Rush Limbaugh the job at KFBK. Well, Bruce Marr talked to this family, this predominant family that was starting up a syndicated network, and Bruce said, yeah, it's legitimate. You might want to give them a try. And so Rush had a second, a second meeting with them over the phone, and he wasn't impressed. He said the network was too ideolo ideology, ideolo ideologically driven, ideologically driven, he also said that they wanted him to give solutions about how to save America from the communists, and Rush didn't like that. But it did get Rush Limbaugh to think about the idea of going syndicated, so Rush ran that by Bruce Marr. Rush didn't hear anything until the end of February. Bruce Marr called him in to called Rush into his office and said, "Rush, uh, remember that? Rush, remember that deal that we talked? Remember that deal?" And Rush said, "What deal?" And Bruce said, "What do you mean?" Rush and Bruce said, "The syndication deal." And Rush said, "Oh yeah." And Rush said, uh, Bruce said that he had some uh, a prospect for Rush. And the deal was is that Rush, Bruce Marr, and Ed McLaughlin, who was from New York, who retired from WABC, but had a business, a small business, that he syndicated Dr. Dina Dell on, was interested in Rush Limbaugh and has heard about Rush. 
In fact, Ed McLaughlin was thinking about buying KFBK and went to the Sacramento area and listened to Rush and quite liked him. So the deal was Rush and Bruce Moore and Ed McLaughlin were to have dinner at a restaurant in San Francisco. And after dinner, Bruce would leave and Rush and Ed would have some adult beverages and Rush would convince Ed why he should be on the network. There was major problems with this. Back then, most talk shows that were carried were local. In fact, the radio stations had a saying, local, local, local. Local, local, local. Basically, that meant no syndicated talk shows. Now, there are syndicated talk shows out there. This is the other thing that Glenn Beck was wrong about. Glenn said that there were no syndicated talk shows out there. Glenn's smarter than that. He knows that there were syndicated talk shows out there. Not as many. Glenn failed to mention the fact that there was Larry King. He also failed to mention Herb Jepko before Larry King. And there was another one before Larry King. And he also failed to mention TalkNet and a few others. This is why I'm fact-checking Glenn Beck. So, uh, but most of the syndicated talk shows were at night, and most of the syndicated talk shows consisted of Larry King, TalkNet, and I think ABC had a program called Talk Radio. TalkNet and Talk Radio were advice shows. So TalkNet consisted of Bruce Williams from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Then from 10 to 1, it consisted of Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and then she quit. So they had a whole bunch of different people uh, host the shows, such as Dr. Harvey Rubin, Bob Madigan, Darrell Wells, a whole host of people. I don't even know who half the people were, honestly. Bruce Williams obviously was a staple from 7 to 10, and then from 10 to 1 a.m. it was whoever was available that night. I'm sure that they had a, a rotation, but it just seemed to me as a listener whoever was available that night. And then, uh, so radio stations did not want to syndicate national talk shows at that time. They wanted to hear from the local people, local advertising. So Rush had a problem. The only way that he could get into the New York market, oh, and the other problem is he had to be in one of the top five markets. The reason for that is because Rush's contract from KFBK, it was an optional contract. It said that he could only quit only if he, A, let KFBK know within 30 days or 30 days before he quit, and B, he was going to one of the top five national show national markets. And the, the other thing was, too, and the only reason he was able to move to New York and do the syndicated show is because... Ed McLaughlin struck a deal with ABC. The rule was back then is that you could not be in one of the top five markets and have your show not be heard or have, figure out a way to have the spots aired on a local station. 
because advertisers did not want to advertise on a show without being heard in New York or a top five market. So they had to figure out how to get their ads heard in New York. And what the deal was is that Rush Limbaugh could do a national show from noon to 2 Eastern and do a show locally from 10 to noon Eastern, but the national spots had to air. So the national spots would be heard in New York just on Rush's local show. That was the only way they got this done. And it's true, advertisers did not want to advertise and not be heard in New York. It's just how things were done back then. Now, Rush had a lot of opposition when he got to New York. Not long after that, people tried to silence him. The station in South Bend, Indiana, for example, they got complaints from specialized groups that were liberal, of course. They got complaints from the specialized special interest groups. So one day, the general manager of the radio station in South Bend, Indiana, called up Rush's network, and I think they even spoke to Rush personally, and said that they were going to take off the show, take the show off their airwaves. Rush Limbaugh was pretty irate about this, and rightfully so, and got on the air the next day and said, there's a, a movement from a small minority that wants my show off the air in South Bend, Indiana. If this goes off the air in South Bend, Indiana, you're going to have to go to Fort Wayne, Indiana to listen to the show. Call the radio station and tell them that you want you like the show, if in fact you like the show, which I know you do. So... The station was swamped with calls, not just from the Fort Wayne, Indiana area, but all over the Fruit of Plain. Apparently, that station had a very powerful signal. A similar, a different tactic had to be used in Santa Barbara. There was a company, a restaurant in Santa Barbara, that usually advertised on over Christmas, and the deal was is they could advertise, but they had to wish all of their all of the radio audience a happy holidays. Well, that year they weren't going to advertise on the radio station that carried Rush Limbaugh because Rush for the first time used the word feminazi. And they didn't like that and they got complaints, so they called the station and said they weren't going to advertise that year. Well, Rush was on a phone call with that station. I guess they called him and said, well, uh, the radio station, uh, we had a restaurant that said that we're not going to advertise, that they're not going to advertise with us because you used the word feminazi. The radio station was not angry. They were readily amused, and Rush shot back and said, hold on a minute, I'm not going to lose advertising just because of a word that I've used, or you're not going to lose it. Rush got on the air that Monday and said, there's a restaurant that has threatened to pull advertising from the radio station in, I, I believe it was probably KFI, because KFI is near Santa Barbara, I do believe. 
Anyway, it was one of those radio stations. And he said, a restaurant in Santa Barbara has threatened to pull advertising from the station because I use the word feminazi. I know you love the show, so go to Woody's Barbecue if you have plans to go to lunch or dinner this week. Go to Woody's Barbecue and tell them that you want them to advertise on the radio station and you like the Rush Limbaugh show. Well, they were, sw- and Rush said, I want this restaurant to be out of food by Thursday or the end of the week. Well, I don't know if the restaurant ever ran out of food, but they were swamped with customers. And so guess what? The, radio- the restaurant advertised on that radio station. There were a lot of attempts to remove Rush. It wasn't just those two. Bill Clinton the Clintons tried to remove Rush. Remember back in uh, the summer of 93, late summer, early fall of 93, the Clintons tried to introduce the Fairness Doctrine bill back? That was for the sole purpose of getting Rush Limbaugh off the air. They didn't say that. They pretended that wasn't so, but it was. Well, that didn't work because a bunch of senators and congressmen were swamped with phone calls. So that didn't happen. And there were other attempts, you know, there were attempts to move advertisers from Rush. Some were successful, some weren't, but they couldn't knock him down. Rush really was a conservative. Rush was not perfect. Rush was a neocon for a while. Rush was for some issues that I was completely against at the time and still am. Rush was a major cheerleader to the Bushes, and he became a neocon for quite a long time. And I stopped listening to Rush mostly for that reason. There were other reasons. I used to I changed into a Democrat back in 2002. I came back to being a conservative. That's another story. But the other reason I quit listening to Rush is he just seemed to be such a big cheerleader for the Republican parties, and he was so in bed with the Bushes. It made me... It it really disgusted me. I was highly disgusted because my gut feeling said that the Republicans weren't doing things the right way. Even though I wasn't a Republican... I knew I could trust my gut feeling. Even though I was a Democrat, I still could trust my gut feeling that something in this country wasn't right. And Rush Limbaugh was contributing to the mess. But you know what? When Rush woke up, he woke up, and he started calling the Republicans out on their bluff And he really took them to task, especially, I want to say, from probably 2015 onward until his last show. And Rush Limbaugh, like him or not, changed talk radio. Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern, I don't want to get into Howard Stern, but I have to bring his name up because you cannot talk about talk radio without mentioning them, they single-handedly changed talk radio. Rush Limbaugh single-handedly saved AM radio. Some would argue FM radio. I don't know about that, but certainly AM radio. 
Now, AM radio tried to do some things to keep themselves alive. For example, AM stereo. Now, Glenn Beck wants you to think AM stereo didn't work because stereo sounds bad on AM. That wasn't necessarily true. It's just that there were two different AM stereo sets. And the radio stations doing AM stereo had to choose which compressor to put in their transmitter. And there was not a standard so you might have had a station saying that they were AM stereo, and they were, but you didn't have the right receiver to pick it up because the, that radio station had a different piece of equipment in their transmitter. It wasn't a compressor. I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't a stereo compressor. It was something else. And I do remember the days of AM stereo. It didn't last very long, but even in, into the 1990s, they tried to promote AM stereo. Just didn't It didn't work because there were two different standards and there wasn't one standard agreed upon. That's why it didn't work. Glenn wants you to think it didn't work because it didn't work and music sounded terrible on AM stereo. No, that wasn't true. It was because there were two different systems being used. And there was not a standard, but nonetheless... They tried to do some things to revive AM radio. Back in the day, and I remember this, AM radio either consisted, you know, when I was growing up, it either consisted of adult contemporary music, country, or talk radio, or all news. That was it. And the talk radio, like I said, was mostly local or it was mostly talk net. A lot of stations would do all news during the day and then air TalkNet at night. That was very common. Or they would air Larry King at night, or they'd air TalkNet and Larry King. It just depended on what the manager wanted. But there wasn't much syndicated talk show. Rush Limbaugh changed all that. You know, he paved the way for talk shows like Sean Hannity, G. Gordon Liddy, Ken Hamblin, there were even independent networks out there, like the Sun Radio Network, who wanted to get in on this. They started doing their own talk network. Independent Broadcasting Network, the Sun Radio Network. There were probably others, too, that I don't know about. It was, it was a huge phenomenon. It was a huge wave from 94 to 96. It seemed like everybody and their brother was doing a talk show. Yet former senators, former, former Senator Bob Dornan, Governor Cuomo, former Governor Mario Cuomo was doing a talk show. It was all the rage. But I don't think Glenn Beck would have done a talk show had it not been for Rush Limbaugh, at least not a syndicated one. And Rush Limbaugh influenced me, even though I became a Democrat for a while. Rush Limbaugh influenced me and amplified my interest in broadcasting. I remember I used to want to be like Rush Limbaugh. Didn't happen, but if Rush Limbaugh, you know, I kind of learned how to be a talk show from listening to Rush Limbaugh, him talking about research and talk show hosts that I knew in my life said, if you want to be a talk show, do a lot of research. They're right. Rush Limbaugh kind of taught me that just from listening to him and him talking about his daily life as a talk show host. 
Rush was very entertaining. That's the other reason why I think Rush Limbaugh survived as long as he did. He was very entertaining. Now, I think Rush was more entertaining back in the late 80s, early, early 90s, from about 89, well, from his first day as a syndicator, as syndi August 1st, 1988, probably up until 96, 97, he was quite the entertainer. And then he became more serious, probably for political reasons. But Rush was very, very entertaining. Even if I didn't agree with Rush Limbaugh on an issue, I found truth in his parodies. And I think that's why a lot of people liked him. You know, people would listen to Rush to see what he would do next with his parodies. I remember one parody, the, you know, when he would do his updates, he would have an animal rights update, or he would, when he would do a tree hugger update, he would play a song by ACDC that had uh, chainsaws and people chopping down trees. I, I don't know what the song was by ACDC, but you probably know what I'm talking about. And... You know, his feminist updates were pretty funny. And I really got a... He played a song called Men by the Forster Sisters when he would do a feminist update. And in the background, he actually... Somehow this was recorded on an abortion rally. And in the, in the background, after the song came on, it said, Men, what are they good for? Automatically, a bunch of militant women got together got together in an abortion rally and said we're fierce we're feminists and we're in your face and then song go on talking about men and that was actually recorded at an abortion rally and rush picked up on that and played it for his feminist updates it was pretty funny i'm trying to think of some other good pair oh there was one parody that i liked called taxula that was aired after bill clinton got elected about uh, a couple that was taxed to death and they were so hungry that they had to go to Congress and beg for some more money. <laughs> I think we all found the humor in that parody, whether you liked Bill Clinton or not. I think we all found the sense of humor in that parody. <laughs> oh, that was funny. He had a song whenever he would do a Ted Kennedy update. He had a song about Ted Kennedy called I Sleep Around, I Sleep Around, I Sleep Around and Around and Around and Around. It was a parody that he got from an Eddie Rabbit song called I Get Around, I Get Around, I Get Around and Around and Around and Around and Around. And I remember hearing that Eddie Rabbit song, so it was kind of funny that he made Rush made a parody out of it. Another one that I kind of liked was uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton was obviously was notorious for breaking campaign promises, as was a lot, as were a lot of Republicans, too. But Rush just harped a lot on Bill Clinton because he knew that that would get him ratings. Bill Clinton was easy to hate. Bill Clinton was not liked by a lot of conservatives, so Rush capitalized on that and just harped on Bill Clinton. And so one of the parodies that he did is he put a parody together... With a seat with songs that would demonstrate Bill Clinton lying. For example, one of them was Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies by Fleetwood Mac. 
Breathe, Don't Tell Me Lies. A lot of the songs had the word lie in them. One had The Crying Game by George Michaels. And that was a parody that he did. Those are the only parodies that I can think of right now off the top of my head that Rush Limbaugh did that were hilarious. I'm sure there were a lot more, but those are the ones that... Oh, one other one that I can think of. I remember, and I did not hear this parody on the radio, on local radio. A lot of these parodies I found out about because Rush Limbaugh was syndicated on WRNO, a shortwave radio station out of New Orleans, Louisiana. And I was curious what that radio station did for the commercial breaks, and I found out that they were broadcasting Rush Limbaugh's parodies, because Rush would do his parodies during the commercial break. Obviously, he had to air his sponsors, but then... In the WABC market, he would air his parodies. And sometimes they'd be picked up by local stations if they didn't break away soon enough from the feed. Or sometimes Rush would just do his parodies on his show, but his parodies were always on were always on his commercials breaks in the local WABC market. Well, WRNO happened to carry that feed. And so that's how I found out about most of his parodies. One of the parodies that I found out about, or well, I heard it. I heard the parody. Remember when there used to be an, a PSA urging children to wear seatbelts and how important it was to, air, to wear seatbelts? Well, at the very end of that PSA, Rush Limbaugh came on and said, can't kids do what they want? Because there was a big to-do about how you can't spank a kid because that's child abuse. Uh, Hillary Clinton said something that people interpreted that children should sue their parents or could sue their parents if they wanted. And, and she was a children's lawyer. I can't remember exactly what she said. But Rush had a heyday with that, and so did a lot of other conservatives. And the children's rights was a big issue. So Rush just made fun of that PSA at the end of it saying, can't kids do what they want? That was pretty good. Oh, the other thing that Rush Limbaugh would do is he would make fun of movies. He would have movie trailers that were parodies. One of them was The Lion King that was made fun of President Clinton. The other was Hocus Pocus. And it was... The voices on the parody of Hocus Pocus were Hillary Clinton and Jocelyn Elders. And uh, Jocelyn Elders in the parody, the person obviously making, mimicking her, said, oh, let's see if Bill Clinton, I can't remember the exact quoting, but something about, can we put a spell on Bill Clinton and will he give Bill Sessions the boot? Bill Sessions back then, of course, was the FBI director that Bill Clinton fired, and there was a, a Russia's voice pretending to be Bill Clinton said, must fire Bill Sessions, must fire Bill Sessions. So that was, uh, that was pretty funny. Those are the parodies that I can think of off the top of my head that were pretty good. So, Rush was literally a part of our lives for those of us that were over the age of probably 33, maybe 30, maybe 25 and older. Rush was part of our lives for quite a while.
He was on the radio for a whole generation. Think about it. You could even argue that he did talk radio for half a generation. Well, for... Yeah, almost half a generation, if you want to go back to his Sacramento days. You know, it, it was like Rush was... Even if we didn't like Rush, even if we were mad at him, he he seemed like he was a part of our life. And I'm not saying he crept... You know, there was a time where I didn't listen to him because I was angry with him for being such a neocon, but I still kept Rush in the back of my mind. I would still, from time to time, listen to Rush to see what he was up to. You know, Rush could not be ignored. I don't want to say that he was in your face because he wasn't, but he was just such a popular talk show host, he could not be ignored. And so even the times where I wouldn't listen to Rush at all, occasionally I'd tune in just to see what he was up to. Rush was a great role model of success who would not back down. Like that song by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, I Won't Back Down. So Rush... May you rest in peace. I hope to meet you in the next life. Maybe my dad has met Rush Limbaugh already. Because my dad, and my mom was eventually, but especially my dad, was a devout Rush Limbaugh fan. Okay. All right. I want to talk about a topic in the LDS community. Something that has been on my mind for quite some time. I think, and I know that I'm going to get myself into a lot of trouble with this, and I may actually have some folks come on and talk about mid-singles ward. We may even have a debate on this because it is a topic that cannot be ignored in the LDS community. I think we need to get rid of singles wards altogether with maybe the exception of student wards. But I think by and large we need to get rid of singles wards altogether. I didn't say young single adults. I said singles ward. That includes mid singles wards. That includes young single adult wards. Get rid of them. The exception I would make is the student wards. And even then that could be debatable, but I would be more willing to accept single student wards. Here's why. We are a church that talks about families. We are a church that really harps on marriage. We are a church that talks about gathering. You know, the Book of Mormon says gathering a lot of times. I have not counted up the times that it says gathering. But the word gathering is mentioned an awful lot. President Nelson talked about the gathering of Zion. And I think the church is doing single adults a great disservice by having these singles wards. Let me explain why. 
there's a lot of people out there, and I'm single, so I'm not judging anybody, but there's a lot of people out there who just want to be single. They don't want to get married. I've seen this attitude. They're not going to come out and say it. But there's a lot of people who just want to stay single. These singles wards are a place to do that. Now, I'm not saying that if you're not married by the age of 30, you're a menace to society. I'm not going there. I won't go there. Because I personally don't believe that. But if we're going to harp on marriage so much and harp on families, let's get people together. Let's get singles into family wards. Now, there's, you know, here's the thing. With social media today, somebody could start a singles group, a certain age group, a certain age group, let's say 25 to 30, let's say 19 to 25, 18 to 25, whatever. Somebody could start a group like that on Facebook today. And that group would probably be successful. I personally think, here's what I think the church needs to do. I think the church needs to get rid of singles wards and areas where there are a lot of single people have magnet wards. So if you are single, after sacrament meeting, one, week, one Sunday you might go to a singles Sunday school class. You know, it, this is really doing this, the way the church is doing it now in Salt Lake and Idaho and areas that are predominantly LDS, California, Alberta, probably other areas. I think it's a great disservice. If we're going to talk about family values, wouldn't it be more appropriate to mingle everybody together or have everybody mingle together, bring everybody together? rather than segregation, because that's what these singles wards are. They're basically segregating. It's segregation. I know that you can be single and go to a family ward. I know that. But most people are going to feel comfortable at a singles ward with their own type. This would actually force families to befriend a single person and have that person be a friend of the family. By the way, I've been a recipient of this. I'll admit, I wasn't too fond of the ward in Arkansas that I was in. But you know what? I made it work. I made it work. I became friends with certain families in Arkansas. You know, I, I'd get a... You know, I, I would actually initiate the conversation and say, do you folks want to go out to dinner? Actually, after I, had, after, I was, uh, after I got a ride home from a family, the wife said, oh, we, we should have you over for dinner sometime. Okay, fine. I, I would be up for that. Just let me know. Well, it didn't happen, but I'll tell you what did happen because I made it happen. I texted my friend who is married to this person who's bought up the idea of dinner or whatever, and I said, well, do you folks want to go, do you want to go to dinner sometime? He texted me back and said, yeah, why don't you come with our family? We're going to this fish place. I can't remember the name of it. I said, okay. 
And so I went with his family. I went with his wife and kids. I also went over to someone else's house for dinner that, you know, him and his wife had a little baby. Uh, he invited me over. You know, if we actually stopped segregating single people, this you would actually see more of this kind of behavior going on. And I'll tell you what, in this day and age of instability, with a lot of power outages going on, where we can't even trust our own government, we can't even trust the press, how many times have I heard Glenn Beck talk about networking with like-minded people? How many times have I heard President Nelson lately talk about the gathering of Zion? How many times have I heard Jeffrey R. Holland talk about the importance of ministering? I think it's appropriate to get rid of these singles wards and start having people go to family wards and people could come up with their own singles activity. Or here's another option. What about getting rid of these singles wards, but then having regional activities or local activities within the local area, and then having maybe a married couple be a chaperone, a chaperone over the singles activities, just to make sure some nut job doesn't come in and try to be a creep? That's an idea. How about it? Here's another problem I have with these mid-singles wards. Especially, and I don't know why I've noticed it, but I've noticed it especially in Salt Lake. Not so much down in Utah County. But in Salt Lake, I have noticed it. I see a lot of mid-singles. I'm not talking about young single adults. I'm talking 30 to 45-year-olds. I see a lot of mid-singles acting as though they never graduated high school. I see a lot of I've seen a lot of clickish behavior even at parties. Eventually I quit going to the parties because they were so clickish. I didn't feel welcome there. I didn't feel wanted there. And you know what? The sad thing is, I probably wasn't wanted by at the party. Maybe not so much by the people at the party as much as the host of the party didn't want me there. And I can tell you that because of some of the sarcastic remarks he'd make to me and things like that. I'm not going to mention names. I'm not going to be specific about the party. I'm just speaking here a lot of parties I've been to. I didn't feel wanted. I didn't feel welcomed. So I quit going. I had certain people I'd hang out with from time to time, but that's about it. And I think if we were to get rid of the singles wards, it would really make those people grow up really, really fast. It would really be a figurative slap in the face to these people saying, grow up or leave. Because they would have to have callings. They would have to interact with more mature members. They would have to interact with children, youth. Yeah, let me tell you, these people would grow up very quickly and put away some of the juvenile behavior that I've seen. Let me give you an example of some juvenile behavior that I've seen at even mid-singles activities. We will call this couple, 
Or we would call these people Brad and Mark. Now, these are not real people that I know. I'm not talking about Brad and Mark, the real people. I'm just giving these people fictitious names to avoid a lawsuit or whatever. Okay, so I'm not giving, you know, I'm not, uh, these are not Brad and Mark, the real people. These are just fictitious, fictitious names so I can give you what I, the scenario that I saw. Back in, I believe it was December of 2015, I went to a, a, a family home evening activity. And I was sitting near Brad and Mark. Brad starts off the conversation. How was your weekend? Oh, no, 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 I remember, no. Brad starts off the conversation. What are you doing, Mark? Mark said, I'm looking in the ward directory to see if I can find a, an attractive single woman to ask out on a date this weekend. Brad says, how was your date last weekend? Mark says, it was terrible. What happened? Oh, the girl just kept being distant with me. The, she kept doing this to me and... She kept dropping hints, and she kept asking me uncomfortable questions. Brad said, who is this girl? Mark said, I'm not going to tell you right now because she's in the ward. Brad said, can you, look her up in the, can you look her up in the directory and point me to the person's name? Mark said, sure, here. Mark pulled up the name. Oh, Brad said, I won't ask her out again. I won't ask her out. How juvenile was that conversation? That's a conversation I would expect to hear in high school. Let me, let me repeat this conversation as though I heard it in high school. And just to illustrate how juvenile this behavior was for somebody that was in the 30, the 30 to 45 age group. Let's put me in this scenario. No, let's not put me in this. Let's use the fictitious name Aaron and Michael. These are two men, fictitious names. I'm observing. I will go back to high school and observe a conversation like this. Aaron, what's up, Michael? Aaron says, what's up, Michael? Michael said, I'm just looking through the yearbook to see if there's a cute girl that I have seen in person that I want to ask out to a dance. Maybe the prom or maybe guys ask girl dance or something like that. There is a dance coming up soon and I'm getting prepared. Aaron says, well... How was hanging out last weekend? Oh, I didn't enjoy it. I was with a girl that made me feel uncomfortable. We were on a group date, and this girl just made me feel uncomfortable. She was asking me about if I was going on a mission. She was asking me what my future plans were, and I still don't know. Aaron said, who was this girl? I don't want to mention her name because she might be within earshot. 
Well, can you point me to her in the yearbook? Sure. Aaron, okay. I won't talk to this girl again, or at least ask her out on a date. See the similarity? And I saw this kind of behavior happen over and over and over again in mid-singles ward when we're supposed to put away juvenile behavior. Now I know that I had the reputation as a teenager of acting older than my age. I was told this over and over and over again, especially when I was 14 and 15. Not so much at 16 and beyond, but I was certainly told this a lot at 14 and 15 by a lot of adults, including, by the way, a neighbor that I had who taught me how to, te- who taught me how to play the harmonica. I told him how old I was because of a conversation we got into the week before at his house. I said, how old do you think I am? And he said, oh, you're 16. I said, no, I'm 14. He said, really? Yeah. He thought I was either 15 or 16. He said, I guess you could be 14, but you act more mature than most 14-year-olds. I can't tell you how many times I heard that at 14 from teachers, people that I went to church with. My parents didn't tell me that, but certainly a lot of other people did. But I would think by the time you're 30 years old, 31, don't you think it's high time to put away juvenile behavior? But I see this all the time at mid-singles events. Not everybody is this way, but enough of them are where it has made it repulsive to at least go to a lot of the mid-singles parties out there. This is why I think the church is doing single people a great disservice by having these mid-singles wards. I think it's high time to get rid of them. Will they? I don't know. I don't think it'll happen in the foreseeable future. But maybe somebody at the top of the ranks in the church is listening to this podcast or has listened to it and thinks, oh, that blind Montana man, Kevin Williams, might have a point. I think I'll bring this up with the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve, or maybe a representative of the church will listen to this podcast and say, oh, Elder Oaks, there's a podcaster out there who thinks that we ought to get rid of mid-singles ward, and he has a very compelling argument. And this is something I'd want to bring up for a long time, and I was hesitant to do so, Because when you're podcasting for a certain religion or a certain group, there's this unwritten rule where you have to tote the line of whatever the church says or whatever a group says, you've got to fall in step or you're somehow out of step with the group or whatever. You better not criticize the group or the church or you're out of the league. Well, you know what? I've had it with that mentality and I'm just going to start speaking my mind. Do I have a testimony of the church? You bet I do. But that doesn't mean that the organization is perfect. That doesn't mean 
that everything going on in the church is just fine and dandy, because that is simply not true. Now, when I say that doesn't mean the organization is perfect, I'm talking about these mid-singles wards. I'm talking about things that are going on in the culture that are not perfect, that are not right. I'm not talking about the way the church itself is organized with the prophet and the quorum of the Twelve and all that. When I say the organization's not perfect, I'm talking about maybe some wards are not perfect, or the mid-singles program or whatever. So if I see something wrong, I'm going to speak up. And if I lose listeners over that, oh well. I'm not out here to be Mr. Popular. My goal with this podcast is to inform and comment and comment. I want to be an informer and a commentator. I don't care about entertaining people. If you want entertainment, go elsewhere. I'm about informing and commenting. As President Benson used to say during some of his political speeches, I am not here to tickle your ears or make you feel good. And by the way, you ought to know this about me. If you've been listening to the podcast long enough, you ought to know this about me. Look at who I've had on. I've had on some very controversial people, and I agree with a lot of their stance. I don't agree with them on everything. For example, I've had Ammon Bundy on twice. I don't agree with Ammon Bundy on everything, although I agree with most of his stance, stances on things. But I don't always agree with Ammon on everything, but I've had him on because I think it's important that he gets his message out there. And this is one of the platforms that he's used to come on the show, so I've let him come on. I've had Jeanette Finnecombe on. I've had uh, Robert uh, Rod Meldrum on, who is, a, I believe, probably a controversial figure in the church historical community. And I'm not saying that just because of the interview. I'm saying that because of conversations we've had off the podcast. I've had Janelle Tobias on, who, by the way, will be a guest on Tuesday. So you ought to know by now that I'm not here to entertain you or make you feel good. I'm here to call a spade a spade. And if I lose, lose listeners for criticizing this particular area in the church, so be it. I don't care. Because I know that I'm going to have a following of some type anyway. I don't have to be Mr. Popular. That hasn't been my intent. And that won't be my intent. That is why I don't have people investing in the show. That is why, I, as far as financially, that is why I don't have any sponsors. Now, if a sponsor wants to come on and we meet and I find out what they're all about and they find out what they're all about and we like each other, great. More power to me and the sponsor. But I'm not begging for sponsors. I'm not begging for money. This podcast is done probably on the lowest budget you could ever think of. All I have is a box. This box right here that plugs into my microphone. And this box also, well, this box, the microphone plugs into this box. And uh, this box plugs into the computer. It's not a fancy soundboard. 
There's not any fancy music to go along with this podcast. It's just me and you, the listener. So I'm doing this on a very low budget, and I'm okay with it. Sure, I'd like to improve the podcast, which is why I have Relay doing voiceovers now. I thank her for that over and over and over. We've become very good friends lately. But my point is, I'm not out here to be Mr. Popular. I'm not out here to entertain or make you feel good. There's plenty of podcasts out there like that. There's plenty of podcasts where if you disagree with me, you can go find a podcast within the LDS community or other places that agree with your viewpoint. There's plenty of that. I'm here to represent a viewpoint that I feel is being over underestimated in the church, mostly the conservative viewpoint. And occasionally I'll have conversations like this with you. Anyway, folks, I want you to tune in next Tuesday. It'll be up uh, probably late Tuesday afternoon, early evening. Janelle Tobias will be my guest. We're going to talk about how she circulated a petition around to have Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney, resign in Utah. That'll be a really interesting discussion. So I will talk to you later, folks. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. If you want to make a suggestion, comment, or to recommend a guest, email Kevin Williams at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Be sure to check out his Facebook page, LDS Life Podcast.